0: The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc.
1: Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you are in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Fazzani, just back from a week in the Caribbean with PAC folks, believe me. Today on the show, we'll delve into portfolio allocation tactics based on major macro themes. We'll address the question of, can we get a soft landing and avoid a recession? Plus, we'll talk about how to capture the so-called night effect. This is an interesting new ETF around this. We'll tell you what it is and why two new ETFs are looking to capitalize on this well-known phenomenon in after hours trading. Here's my conversation with Bruce Levine, CEO of NightShares, along with Jason Trenner, Chairman and CEO of Strategic Research Partners. Now, Jason, you're one of the very best people I know at the 30,000 foot view of the world overall. Tell us where we are right now on stock prices and and what side of the whole recession slash soft landing debate do you come down on?
2: Well, as far as stock prices go, Bob, I think uh, the good news is a good portion of the multiple compression, I think, is behind us due to expectations for higher inflation. Uh, the bad news is that I'm not sure we've seen the earnings adjustment uh, that people are uh, anticipating uh, yet. Right now, if you look at S&P 500 operating earnings, they're still, still forecast. we have about 10% next year. We think that's going to be more like 4, 4%. Uh, and that maybe leads me to the second part of your question, which is we're, we're more in the, the soft landing camp uh, right now. Uh, although I have to say history is not really on our side on that. Generally speaking, it's, it's very hard for the Fed to pull off a soft landing once inflation right. has gotten away from it. And, of course, but that
1: impacts the whole earnings outlook. If you're on a soft does. landing side, maybe you're going to get 4% increase in earnings instead of 10 as some people are expecting. But if you're on a recession side, we could be down 10%. Yeah,
2: earnings, you know, in, in typical recessions, earnings fall about, th- reported earnings fall about 30%. So it does make a big difference. Uh, The good news is that you do have um, have pretty tight labor markets. You still have a pretty easy Fed, and you still have a lot of uh, excess savings in terms of consumers uh, and corporations. So um, hard landing is hard to forecast right now, uh, it it seems to be. And we're going to give the Fed the benefit of the doubt for the time being. You know, um, Bruce, you have been in the ETF business for a
1: long, long time. I mean, many, many years, decades even, even longer than I have. And what's amazing to me is the resilience of the ETF structure. We've had a rotten year, the s and now 20%, and yet we still get inflows into plain vanilla ETFs overall. It's the resiliency of the structure that's amazing to me. Uh, you're a
0: veteran, what
1: do you see happening in the second half of the year in the ETF business? Yeah,
0: I think the ETF structure's always been the, the gold standard for innovation, and you, all the good ideas come out in the ETF structure. You know, that's going to continue. Uh, the, the investors have spoken, they like the structure. And so, you know, the markets, I sort of agree with Jason, they'll be kind of shaky for a little while. Uh, but when they respond, you'll see probably record flows in ETFs.
1: Yeah. You know, um, I want to go back to you because you've gotten into the ETF business this year, which I find very interesting. Yeah. Uh, that after all these years of being a big strategist, now you're getting back into the ETF business. You launched the Strategas Macro Thematic Opportunities ETF. This was launched in January. Actively managed. You're looking to outperform the broader market by providing exposure to multiple macro thematic. This is right up your alley. But tell right. me about what's what, what's the so, idea here. So
2: the, you know, the idea, Bob, is that all of our clients are institutional investors. So we do written research. We visit them. Uh, but there was no ability for individuals investors to access our work in any way. We thought this was a way to do that. Uh, We are very thematic in our approach, and the idea is that we're actively managing the themes. So we focus on what we think are the biggest drivers of stock prices at any given time, and do our own quantitative analysis to pick stocks to to play those themes. So the themes now are, as you might suspect, uh, higher inflation for longer, uh, quantitative tightening. Uh, We want some cyclical defensives uh, in in the portfolio and we also like the idea of deglobalization uh, after uh, after covid and after uh, russia invaded ukraine so all those things taken together i, I think it gives us an interesting uh, portfolio certainly pretty um, pretty levered yeah. to commodities and, and oil prices uh, which worked out really well at the beginning it hasn't worked out so great lately but we're optimistic about the second half. So
1: when I look at the main holdings, we always want to look at what your yeah. top five, seven, eight holdings are. I see a lot of commodity names. Uh, I see Occidental. I see New I also see the dollar, the U.S. dollar. Yeah. What What's the re- rationale? Well, here? I can understand why commodities, because all all the ma- macro guys are really into commodities right now still. But what's the dollar? Yeah. Well, the
2: the dollar really been is right just, about that. The, 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 we've been, been right, but you know, listen, the dollar, I. I uh, it's hard to see another. Certainly, Bank of Japan or ECB are way behind the United States, and they're taking a big gamble. It seems to me, um, it, a weaker currency on their part helps their exports, uh, but uh, but it, it provides real risk to their consumers. But you, they don't. The Bank of Japan and the ECB don't seem to be even in the ball game as far as trying to fight inflation, right. whereas so, uh, whereas the Fed, no. even though it's late, is fighting, it's clearly fighting right. inflation. So their weak currencies are gonna make imports very expensive for them. It, exactly, it's remarkable how how strong commodities have been, even though they've weakened recently. It's, it's amazing how strong commodities have been, despite the fact the, that the dollar has been as strong as it is. One wonders what commodity prices would be like if the if the dollar weakened.
1: And, and, and just as a tourist, I was just in France uh, on vacation. I marvel it was a dollar four uh, for yeah. the euro. It remarkable. was a dollar twenty five. Yeah. Not, not yeah, you're I mean, kind of yeah, through the you know, IPO that's price. That's worth buying a couple of uh, yeah. glasses of rosé. Yeah, and, you bet. You know, a few nice shirts overall. Um, uh, Bruce, you ran the ship. At wisdom tree for a long time. But what's amazing is this new firm that you've got. You've got a new business going here. And it's related to after hours trading. Um, Your firm, Nightshare, you've got this new firm. You launched two ETFs in the last two weeks. Uh, The Nightshare's 500 ETF, the 2000 ETF. Uh, Both are seeking to capture this effect. You call it the night effect, which is a phenomenon whereby you say overnight markets generally outperform daytime trading sessions on a risk-adjusted basis. That's an important yeah. word, risk-adjusted yeah, yeah. basis. Um, so explain how this works. Yeah. Tell us what, what are you owning here, yeah, and yeah. what's the rationale for this?
0: I mean, the research that launched us was just incredible when I first saw it, you know, just how persistent and powerful this effect was, that most of the return you were getting over time was coming in the night session. So the night session is, I buy at the close, and I sell the next morning at the open. And then, it's that simple, it's though. You're not the, trading in between. And then your, I'm sitting out the day. You're exactly. You're buying at the open and selling yeah. at the close every day on a daily basis. And what, what the research showed that was phenomenal was how poorly rewarded and volatile and noisy the day session is. That was the thing that really struck us. So, for example, in the case of small caps, over many, many years, the daytime return is negative on the Russell 2000. So, so we have two funds, uh, large cap and small cap, that are trying to, uh, you know, capture this effect for investors.
1: Now, let's assume that this is correct. I, I, I'm, I'm not disputing you, but yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's people would dispute this. But why does this occur? Why, why does this effect
0: actually? You know, again, this there's some academic literature, lots of it, actually. And there's sort of a few few reasons. One is news flow happens when markets are closed, whether that's earnings or M&A. Uh, M&A is very positive for the markets. Earnings on balance positive for the markets. So you have to be invested overnight to catch that. And then there's a lot of structural re- reasons, uh, sort of de-risking that happens at the institutional level. Yeah. You know, people have this sort of desire to go home uh, flat sometimes so they can sleep at night. And, and so they leave something on the table for the, the other investors.
1: Yeah. So I want to make clear what buying at the at, at the start of the after-hours session. Yeah. There's really three sessions in my mind. There's a, a pre-open. that's. Four or eight, eight, four a.m. to yeah. you know in the morning. Uh, that's out there. Uh, there is four, I guess 48. There's a regular hours is 9.34. Four. Then yeah. there's after hours, right? Four to yeah. Four to, so, four uh,
0: to eight p.m. Eastern time, right? Yeah. W- w- tell us what's where you're buying yeah. and selling. What's what's so our goal? All our research was done this way, and it's the goal of the fund is to get as close to the 9:30 New York open and the 4 p.m. New York close. So this morning the fund right around 9.30, got out of its position, and it's sitting in cash. So, you know, it took a hit overnight with the rest of the market, but it's now down less. For example, our fund NSPY is down less than SPY because the market continued to lower so today. So when are you buying? What, and so that tonight at 4 o'clock, we'll go in and buy. 4 o'clock is yeah. when you buy. Okay. And so we're sitting sort of in cash and treasuries throughout the day.
1: Jason, do you have any, any thoughts on this? I mean, there, there are markets where it seems that there's an awful lot of activity but in general you know my overall experience with professional investors they constantly come on and say be careful about in the after hours liquidity is much thinner the bid asks are much wider so it would seem to me to be cautious. Now, he's making a very important distinction here. We're not trading. That's, that's what right, his, his right. distinction is. But but
2: still, there's, the academic literature is very interesting. It, it is, this. and it's, I would say it's, it's somewhat counterintuitive, which makes the fund interesting, right? It makes it, makes yeah. it different. Uh, and I, I have to say, I, I know in certain asset classes, like Bitcoin, but as an example, I think almost all the action is really after uh, market hours. But it's very interesting to hear uh, this uh, this academic literature, particularly regarding small caps and maybe more, even less liquid names than maybe the yeah. larger cap names, yeah. where there's probably a lot more that goes on that moves the stock, I would
0: imagine. Absolutely. I mean, this thing we call the night effect exists on individual stocks, lots of smaller ETFs, but we wanted to start with the large liquid indexes where we could use the futures market just to, de- to deliver it very efficiently.
1: Yeah. But this thing with the small caps, yeah. your contention is, we're talking about the Russell, right? Russell, 2000, Day, yeah. That Overall, it's a negative return during the day hours. Yeah, and with, with, a le,
0: with a lot less—sorry, a lot more volatility. With more volatility, yeah. right?
1: Uh, so you're even risk-adjusted, of course, here. Yeah. And we still don't know why this effect actually happens. I mean, if—I mean, I'm trying to think of efficient market hypothesis here. Yeah. Why would this effect actually happen? Everything would smooth out in the long run, it would seem to me. But it's,
0: it seems to be this sort of institutional de-risking, this desire to. Um, uh, one of the professors called it an illusion of control, right? If the markets are open, I can trade out of any position, but if they're closed, I'm sort of a dead duck waiting for the open. And, and so they, uh, there's a sense of leaving things on the table. Really? Yeah. OK. So let me just, it,
1: it, it, do you think there's a future doing this in an after hours? I mean, I had some people on who were seeking to start yeah. an exchange that yeah. want to operate 24 yeah. hours around the clock now. There's people seeking to do this. I know Robinhood at one point wanted to have what they call hyper extended hours. I think in Robinhood you could trade until yeah. 6 p.m. But they want, at one point they were talking about it, about doing hyper extended yeah. trading. Is, is this, do you see this as a trend that's happening? Not exactly. I mean, I know, since you you're agnostic, it doesn't matter yeah. to you, but if there was more trading activity, there would probably be less volatility. I'm wondering more if more of this would smooth out. Then.
0: It might smooth out, yeah. But, you know, until the New York Stock Exchange and the other, you know, venues really decide um, they're going to really extend, and, and people's behavior changes, and ch- trading volumes shift dramatically. You know, once a day, um, the accountants have to come in and you know value everything and say this is what a fund is worth, and it's a lot of that sort of structural things that go on at the end of a day. Things get marked to market, interest gets charged on position, capital gets charged up on positions, and that seems to be what causes the night effect. And so we don't see it going away. You know, even if volumes ticked up a little bit after hours.
1: This seems to be a a phenomenon of the modern trading age in general. Everything is trading faster. There's more of it. We we see, of course, uh, in Bitcoin, in in crypto as well. Um, Electronification has made all of this possible. When I came down here in 1997, there were 4,000 guys, it was all guys, essentially. Here, sitting here, right around us, yeah. that had 80% of the volume all happened on the floor with a bunch of guys yelling at each other in yeah. 19. It's hard to believe in our lifetime. Yeah. And now the floor has, I don't know,
2: 15, 18% well, of the volume. In the 70s they I believe they had to close the market twice a week uh, during the paper crunch just to keep up with the just to keep up with the back office. Mm. Right? So now with electronification, I mean, there's really no, it doesn't seem like there's many yeah. constraints in yeah. terms of, of where did, trading. Where
1: did you come up with this idea? It's a, it's a curious, because yeah. lo- looking at it to me, yeah. uh, it's always been you know, thinner yeah. trading, higher volatility, it seemed to me, wider bid yeah. ask, kind of risky for people to trade. But you've seen, but made an observation that, well, independent of all that, yeah. the market actually does this.
0: Yeah, so we have a sister company called AlphaTray, and they have a great research team. They were running a hedge fund, and they were using this signal in the hedge fund, and we just kept looking at it, and they kept showing me more and more how, and it was one of the most compelling signals they had, and so I got excited about it. I realized no one had ever done this in ETFs, and then after that, I found all this other academic literature that was supporting it, and so that really kind of sealed the deal that said, wow, you know, there's something here, and then the question was just, can we deliver it? So you know. Can you trade through it? And, yeah. and, you know, the markets have changed a lot um, since the paper-based you were talking about. You know, it's much cheaper to trade. Um, we have a lot of different uh Instruments available to us, so you know yeah. we got comfortable we could deliver. I, I
1: like the simplicity of it: buy it, buy it for, sell it at 9:30. Nine, yeah. it's, it's, it's very easy to understand, and there's yeah. not any real trading other than that actually going on. So you can be agnostic on this yeah. whole question about exactly how much volatility, as yeah. long as you can demonstrate yeah. that in the long just, run, Bob, just, are, there is some outperformance. Yeah,
0: just to give you an idea, like in the first half of the year it was a rough first half of the year, as you know. Uh, if you were invested 24 hours in the Russell 2, you lost about 23%. If you were just owning the night portion, again, you know, this is not our fund, but just close to open, open to close, um, you were down like less than 7%.
1: Now say this again, if it, if, what time period are we talking about? First half of this year. Okay, if you own the Russell 2000, you're
0: down 23%? 23 plus percent. Okay. And if you own only the night side of that, you're down less than seven. So it's pretty dramatic. Yeah. You know, because so what you see Uh, And what you saw in the first half of the year is many of these very volatile days where the market would just pick up steam to the downside and, you know, close on the low. And and those are, you know, our research showed there was many more of these what we call left-tail events, you know, uh, during the day than there are at night. And so that's... Left-tail event being what? um, A really bad down day, essentially. So um, one of the professors we talked to said, you know, statistically, bull markets happen in the day and the night. But statistically, bear markets happen during the day session, which is interesting. They're just yeah. more, much more frequent. And- so
1: the, the wide outperformance on the Russell would, I mean, we, we've seen trading volumes go through the roof in the last few years since COVID. You know, yeah. We used to do 7, 8 billion shares a day of total equity trades, all exchanges. And we're doing uh, 13 billion now, 14. A lot of this is low-priced stocks that people are trading, uh, Russell 2000 yeah. type things. And I'm wondering if that's, you know, might be one of the phenomenon where you get people trading in after hours, you you know, the Reddit crowd, it's sort of Mm. an outdated phrase, Reddit crowd, but that may be a factor here as well. I'm just trying to figure uh, out why this happened. I know, I know.
0: It's it's a strange thing, right? It struck me as strange when I first saw it as well, but then I really watched it and and it's just so persistent. Uh, You know, the meme stock craze uh, is an area where you saw a huge night effect, actually. Uh, in meat well, stocks.
1: Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. Because they wanted to trade after hours, right? Because the, the chat rooms never ended. They're, they're, <laughs> they're always working some way or another, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation with Jason Trennett from Strategus Research Partners. Uh, Jason, thanks for sticking around. I wanted to get a, a little more thought from you on the earnings situation because we're heading into earnings season. JP Morgan will be reporting on Thursday. Um, you know, the S&P is down 20% this year, and all of us have noticed that the entire 20% of decline is a multiple compression. The right. PE ratio has gone down from, you know, 21 and a half to somewhere around 17 or so. Uh, but there's been no earnings compression. We're still expecting the overall street bottoms. Uh, 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 up guys are still expecting roughly a 10 percent increase in earnings, and almost 10 percent in 2023 yeah. as well. People are marveling at how this can be. Um, I'm wondering what what you are thinking right now. Uh, it seems like CEOs are going to be fairly cautious in their commentary going into the.
2: I would think Second so. Man. I think. Listen, Bob, I think um, and you, you never want to say someone's wrong. I mean, maybe the market knows something we don't, or maybe the bottoms-up analysts know something we don't. But my experience has largely been that companies, um, most analysts get their cues from the companies, and the, and the companies have yet to really throw in the towel on their earnings expectations. We're going to know a lot more about this over the next couple of weeks as the earnings start to come through. And I'm really more focused in many ways on the guidance than I am on the earnings. Yeah. Um, inflation, oddly, because, because profits are in nominal terms, inflation can actually lift profits. It's just that the quality of profits tends to be worse, which means that you're, you're doing it on weaker margins. And that's another one of the reasons why, generally speaking, the multiples come down, because investors aren't as willing to pay up for earnings that are really just off the top line
1: We we have seen these margins have been remarkable you know they historically they used to be seven eight nine percent and then all of a sudden during covid we were we were 11 and then last year we were 13 and a half i think it was the second quarter it was like all-time record the corporate america proved itself remarkably resilient they they cut uh, their spending dramatically during COVID. They cut real estate costs, they cut labor costs, they cut transportation, they cut everything they could. They used technology to become more efficient. And then when the revenues came back, a lot of that money, increase in revenues, went back to the right to the bottom line again because they were operating more efficiently. Um, this is classic capitalism, in a sense. Right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, my own view, though, I would say, Bob, is I, I'm somewhat skeptical that that's that's sustainable. Uh, part of the reasons why costs stayed relatively low is by fiat. The company, no company right. could really, right. open. If certainly, if you're a service-oriented a, a, a company, it's pretty hard to keep, let's say, labor costs down uh, indefinitely. And you can, you, for most companies, about 70 percent uh, of costs are labor. Uh, And as we can see, just from Friday's report, payroll employment report, uh, average hourly earnings are up 5%. So my own opinion is that margins are likely have peaked for this cycle and are largely going to come down. I do think there there is some relief that's coming on the commodity side for more manufacturing oriented companies. So that's that's good. Uh, But labor, I still think, is is a little bit of a sticking point. You know, it, it wasn't too long ago where people were saying, gee, if we could only get if we could only get uh, the average uh, hourly rate at $15 an hour, all of our problems would be solved. There'd be no yeah, more income inequality. And, and here we are three or four years later. And everyone's uh, you, making $15. You, you can't, you can't get anyone to work for $15 like an hour, right? right? And you still yeah. have a lot of the same What about issues? that
1: fact? I, you know, I was just in, in France on vacation. It, it was amazing to me the French are complaining that they can't get people. It seems to be a worldwide phenomenon, yep. not just the great, you know, resignation in the United States, but the, the the bartender at my hotel in Paris bitterly complained that we have no one coming to work anymore.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think what I, is this phenomenon? Not to sound overly conspiratorial or or uh, get politics into it, but I think, I, I, as a businessman, I, I think you get precisely what you incentivize, and I think um, in, in order to deal with COVID. Uh, A lot of governments have largely subsidized people to stay at home, and people got used to it, and they found other ways to make money, and there was probably some accumulated savings uh, from some of the transfer payments. And they started new businesses, too. Precisely. So, I mean, I think over time, that impact will wane, and people will have to come back to work, especially if the economy slows. But I think, in some ways, it's not that surprising. In the U.S., as an example, we dumped $5 trillion into a $21 trillion economy in 12 months, so 25% of the economy, it, it, we, we just printed the money, put it into the economy, and um, in some ways it's not surprising you get inflation. It's also not surprising that you got very, very rapid uh, economic growth out of that. The thing is, at a certain point, the hangover will come, the bill will come due. I think that's starting to it's obviously started to come in the form of inflation. I think it will also start to come uh, yeah. in the form of, of slower growth as well.
1: And, and this COVID thing that does not go away. Uh, no one wants to talk about it. It's like, you know, your, your batty uncle that's right. in the room. Nobody wants to acknowledge that he's actually there, uh, but it's there. Right. Uh, and when I was traveling, uh, I, I was in... Uh, London was in Heathrow. I was in Marseille airport. I was in St. Martin uh, a few weeks ago. Nobody was wearing, 5% were wearing masks um, that were out there. Everyone seems to have ignored it. And yet we know it's not really going away. I'm wondering what if any impact that still has going into the fall.
2: Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I think its impact on um, its true impact on people's willingness to go back to work. I don't think is it may be used as an excuse. Yeah, and not to That's say that it. it's not. It, it, I, we know that there are very vulnerable um, populations, and and for them, obviously, it's a very real and valid concern. I would say I think we've learned over the last couple of years for, that for most young, healthy people, um, it's. Uh, It can be dangerous, you should take care of yourself, but it's not something that's going to prevent you or should not prevent you from going back into the workforce. One of the things that's been very difficult, as you know, is the labor force participation rate in the U.S. has remained very low. It is very hard to get people back to work. In my opinion, that has more to do, again, with the incentives, the financial incentives that we've set up, uh, than it has with uh, the health impact. But certainly, COVID, we have to live with COVID. And I think we've learned also, with the benefit of hindsight, that the costs associated with shutting the entire economy down may have been greater than some of the benefits, uh, especially, again, for, for younger, healthier people. For, for vulnerable populations, obviously, um, that was a good trade, but for a lot of the rest of us impact on our children our families all the rest right. of it It's been pretty, but you can't pretty it's intense. the
1: problem is you can't separate them. I mean When you say the more vulnerable you talking about my 93 old mother is essentially yeah. so how
2: do I separate? I have an 86 year old mother too. I, I and it's it's very difficult and maybe you, you Obviously, there's not much I think particularly when it comes to a society Keeping the schools open, in my opinion, is a critical element. Based on our analysis, it's a critical element in keeping the wheels turning in a society. Once schools close, a lot of things shut down, just given the way most families operate. Usually, obviously, one parent has to stay home to take care of the child. It makes it very hard for that person to go back to work. And so here again, I you know I'm praying that uh, mercifully we don't have another big outbreak of, of COVID, but if we do, we, we learn to figure out a way to at least keep the kids back in school yeah. uh, so that uh, the overall economy can can continue to move forward. and,
1: and what about russia, ukraine here's the other third crazy thing that we've we've thrown into this this whole mix, you know, it's it's amazing to me what's happened. If you would have told me four years ago, you know there's going to be a global pandemic outbreak and, you know, a million people in the United States are going to die and some millions of people overseas are going to die too and we're going to shut down the global economy for a full year and partially shut it down for another year, we would have said you were crazy, right? literally this is a science fiction story and it actually happened and it actually happened and we and now it's sort of like normal we're living through that so that in itself is a seismic event right then you have china shutting down then you have the russia ukraine war everyone said you cannot have a conventional ground war in europe anymore nobody's going to do that it's gone as an idea and it happened and it happened so Uh. any the market would have been had a cataclysmic time dealing well, the difficult time dealing with any one of those three things—shutdown in China, uh, Russia-Ukraine, and a, you know the global pandemic—and yet we're doing all three at once now. Yeah. And the S&P is only down 20%. Yeah,
2: I mean, I think again, though, Rob, I think that's partly due to the, just the enormity of the response, both monetary and fiscal, that yeah. we've had to the to, uh, to the pandemic, in particular. Um, so, I, but I, I think one of the things that those, I, I think both the pandemic and the the war between Russia and Ukraine, one of the big impacts, and we talked about it in our ETF, the strategist Macro Thematic Opportunities Fund, is this idea of deglobalization. I, I think. I think there was, a, since the Berlin Wall came down, there was generally a hope uh, and a bet, really, that uh, the more trade we did with other countries, the more Western they would become in, in their values. And I think between the pandemic and China uh, and the war and Russia, I think people are reconsidering right. just how far de-glo- deglobalization uh, or assume, globalization can go.
1: If we assume that globalization gave us real benefits of efficiency, Lower cost, lower interest rates in general, less financial friction. It would be reasonable to assume that the opposite, deglobalization, would be higher inflation, less efficiency. Absolutely. I mean, if you're going to have to replicate, you, you, you know, a fab plant in Texas that you have in Taiwan, right. that argues for less efficiency.
2: Absolutely, on higher costs. Um, I would say also higher. Probably higher military spending, higher defense spending, no. other things that where there was a, a certainly in the first but since the Berlin Wall came down, there was enormous peace dividend uh, that we all enjoyed. Uh, and that um, that slowly got worn away. But it's in my opinion, it's really going to get worn away now.
1: Yeah, I think it's it's, it's going to be it, tough. And I think that, number one, uh, people are going to realize the benefits of globalization. Uh, and they're going to miss it, even though it's popular to speak against it. Um, and I think it's just going to be a lot more difficult. I also think that everybody who's now claiming that the Federal Reserve are a bunch of fools because they pumped too much money in the economy, and now we're going to have to deal with the effects of that, you know, where were they in 2009 when the literally the world was falling apart, and they stepped in? Yeah. And the only thing they realized afterwards was they didn't do enough. Yellen said, said as much. Bernanke said as much. And yeah. when this new disaster happened with COVID, they really went all in with the five trillion you were saying yeah. and saved the economy. And now everybody's we saying, "What a bunch of fools these people were! Yeah. Why
2: did they move?" Bob, I might, ta- I might take a little bit of the opposite side of that because there, there was five trillion extra spending, fiscal right. spending, and then there was five trillion that was added to the Fed's balance sheet. Right, it went from and four to nine trillion. Four to nine trillion. And so I, you know, my own, I. I I'm very much behind what the Fed did during the financial crisis to keep us from going into the barter system. I, I, but in, in my opinion, um, at a certain point, the Fed should have exited um, zero interest rate policy and should not have continued to and, keep and the size of the balance sheet. And why do you think they shape. didn't? Was it? The, the rationale was that the, uh, the political sphere was too dysfunctional to get anything done to actually help the economy. My rejoinder to that would be that the Fed is not a political institution, that those are decisions. The Fed, because it has this enormous power to create money, it should not be involved in decisions that should generally be left to people who are elected by the people. And so I, I view Fed, Federal uh, Reserve policy largely almost as bumpers on a bowling lane. They're there to prevent good outcomes or, or uh, they're there to, pre- excuse me, they're there to prevent really bad outcomes one way or the other they're not there to get a perfect strike. Uh, And I think in some ways, the Fed got too involved uh, in the economy. In my own opinion, uh, it led to a lot more financial engineering as opposed to capital spending. I think there are a lot of other unintended consequences of it. It came from the right place, the right instincts. But uh, in my opinion, um, it should only be used. That that type of meddling should only be used in very extreme circumstances.
1: Well, you could argue it was a pretty extreme circumstance, but those are very fair observations. I thank you. Folks, we've gone a little longer than we normally do, but uh, I've got one of the big strategic thinkers uh, f- with us and an old friend of mine. So I took a little more of your time than I normally would. Jason Trent, a chairman of Strategus Research Partners. Thanks very much for joining us. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the ETF Edge podcast.
0: Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.